Documentary filmmaker Jessica Lesky joins me in the chat cave this week for a ramble. But before we get to the show, folks, are you subscribed to Coming Up Next? It's really easy to do and it's going to automate the whole process of you actually getting the episodes each and every week. All you have to do is go to comingupnext.com.au. You select iTunes or Stitcher or Podbean. You can also go to YouTube or Spotify. So it's really everywhere you look. Search for Coming Up Next. Uh, hit the subscribe button and it's going to come at you for free each and every week into your pocket if that's where you keep your phone. If it's coming to your laptop, probably doesn't fit in your pocket. Anyway, let's get into the interview. Hey peeps, welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast. This is my podcast and I'm Alistair Marks and this is Coming Up Next, the podcast. Uh, Thank you to my guest from last week, Bob Eisenhart. Bob is a uh, documentary film editor um, who's been working as an editor for over 40 years. If you're interested in getting an inside scoop on how... uh, how a verite and observational documentary is put together from an editorial point of view. Comingupnext.com.au is going to be where you will find that out because it's got the archives and last week's episode was that episode. It seems like um, this uh, this podcast is becoming a little bit of the documentary hour in a way. Um, so many of my guests from... The uh, more recent times have been people who were working in the documentary space, be it as, uh, as directors, uh, editors, um, producers. Uh, I guess it's because you kind of gravitate towards where your interests are focused. And um, my interests and in my personal work is, uh, is mostly focused in the, uh, in the non-fiction space. That's not to say that um, we're not having some amazing conversations with people who are working in, uh, in fiction and in those kind of uh, worlds. But um, yeah, I'm sort of looking at the list of people who I have recently spoken to and some of the guests who are coming up next or soon. And a lot of them are people working in documentaries. I think, I think there's a, a real appetite, as I've discussed many times, for this kind of... Um, this kind of media, this kind of material. Uh, And so when I was uh, on a trip to Melbourne recently, I was uh, really delighted to speak with a colleague, someone who I've grown up with, someone who uh, has been working, in a sense, in uh, in, uh, kind of parallel. Um, She's been working on, uh, or had been working on this documentary, uh, I Used to Be Normal, uh, about boy band fandom um, for about five years. And uh, we reconnected a few years ago when she was a couple years in. I was a couple years working into uh, working on the documentary um, on the Love Your Sister Project. And, you know, where there was, um, it was just really great, I guess, to be able to share the experience and now to see how uh, amazingly her documentary has gone not only at home but internationally as well how well it's been received and the life that it's having beyond uh beyond just putting it together and making it um it premiered at hot docs uh, i'm speaking of course of jessica lesky my guest this week 
Jess pulls back the curtain on the uh, on the process of putting together this film over all those years and uh, of getting the participants involved, of, of getting people excited about the, the film. She also talks about her film, uh, The Ball, which was uh, one of her first documentary projects. You know, we talk about the usual kind of philosophical musings, so let's get into it. You can go and see I Used to Be Normal in Australian cinemas from November 22nd, but for now, here is my interview with the film's director, Jessica Lesky. It must be very exciting to have had... uh, screening of your film at MIF uh, as part of this I guess uh, the, the circuit that your film has done starting in uh, in Toronto at Hot Docs and through to Sydney Film Festival and then MIF to be going to a festival that I imagine you have frequented a lot over the last probably 20 years of or 15 years of life and career to then have your film not only playing but featured as uh, as a as a with a spotlight on it and to be doing a q and a must be uh, quite gratifying and I could imagine surreal as well definitely surreal because I was sleep deprived I just had a baby <laughs> a few weeks before yeah. um, which was maybe good because it took the edge off a little bit I think as you say I was so excited to have a film in myth and I think if I hadn't had the baby I would have maybe been a bit nervous but now because I was just like stand upright and get through it. So it, it made it like less um, less daunting yeah. maybe. And because – so Sydney was our Australian premiere, but I was too pregnant to get on the plane. So Melbourne was effectively my Australian premiere and my – yeah, my hometown premiere. So it was very special. Yeah. I suppose having a kid would certainly – I mean, aside from sleep deprivation and the uh, physio – physiological elements of uh, what it does to you would contextualize I guess um, career achievements as perhaps not a, not as uh, I don't know how to I want to say not as significant but because it's still incredibly significant but it's like then all of a sudden the baby is like the the main priority in your mm. life but this film I do think Like I I said to you that having the baby is so hard and so exhausting, but making the film was so much more challenging, Yeah, you know, because it was five years of challenges along the way. Lots of joys, but challenges. And yeah, the baby, having a baby does give you perspective. And I mean, I'm only seven weeks in, so I know it's only going to get more (laughs) daunting, maybe. Um, You've only got like 18 years left. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, the film, I guess with a baby, maybe you have support everyone's like oh well done you're doing that thing how exciting but making a film about boy band fans everyone is quite skeptical and you have to really fight to get support and you know a lot of doors get closed on you so I think it was harder it's a less conventional birthing (laughs) yeah it's just bad timing for me that both babies you know come out at the same time yeah so I'm I'm juggling both yeah, and you have the the headaches and the stresses and the sleepless nights. I guess, especially if you're doing like media uh, internationally. Although you went to uh, Toronto, didn't you, for that premiere? Yeah, I, we went. I was um, 
29 weeks. So it's just over the, you're not meant to fly past 28 weeks, really. Right. So I had a letter from my doctor. Um, I had to clear it with the um, airlines that we were flying. But yeah, I'm really glad that I went because it was really special. But it was just <laughs> challenging to fly with an enormous stomach. Yeah, I bet. And, you know, just to walk around the street. You know, it's exciting to be in a new city and I probably would have done more sightseeing if... I could walk a bit faster. Yeah, because how long does it take to get from Melbourne to Toronto? Uh, it's a stupidly long yeah. flight. And we broke it up a lot. We um we stopped in LA for a few hours and just checked into an airport hotel so I could just like, you know, be flat for a little bit. <laughs> and um, Yeah, so we broke it up. But it's, yeah, it, it's very far to go. Yeah. So, like you, so the film was a five-year process from start to finish mm-hmm. in terms of when you made the decision that you wanted to make this documentary or from when I you... I think longer. Well, five five years from first day of shooting. Right. But I'd met with Rita maybe five months prior yeah. to, to, to meet her and talk about a few ideas, but this is the one that we both got excited about. And then my One Direction love was another about six months prior to that. Yeah. So... It's, you know, almost a six-year. And how did you meet Rita? Was that at film school? Uh, no, we didn't. We had a weird situation where um, a few people had said to me, have you met Rita Walsh? I think you'd get on. And people had said that to her as well. And I went in to meet with some cinematographer about a corporate job in an open plan office. And she was in there as well. And so she heard someone say, oh, Jess Lesky's here to see you, to the cinematographer. And she ran in and was like, hi, I've been meaning to meet you. And I flipped over a page in my notebook and I'd written down her name because someone <laughs> had said you should speak to this person. So, yeah, we were, we were meant to be. Was she? Did she have as much uh, interest or um, curiosity about boy bands as you did at the no, time? No, she didn't get it, which is fine because a lot of people don't. And I didn't get it until it happened to me. But she, I think she was excited to work with me. She'd seen the ball and she really loved the ball. Um, this is a doc that you made. Yeah, sorry, a documentary I made um, for the ABC a couple of years prior. And so I, I pitched her a couple of different ideas. And this was still, I was still figuring out what this was in my head. I just knew that there was something interesting about boy band fans that, that most of the world didn't know about. And so I put together a One Direction study pack for her, <laughs> which was very fun for me. Um, lots of magazine clippings. Yeah, and just lots of um, lots of t- funny Tumblr posts and Instagram. It was more about it was about the fans. Yeah, it was about this is who One Direction are, but it was these are the interesting things about the fandom and fan speak and you know things I'd learnt about um, fan art and um, fan fiction and just things that I didn't think that people would know when you think um, you know One Direction and you can be quite dismissive. So I tried to give her a more rounded view. Um, this is like around 2012. Yeah, this was December 2012. Right. Is filmmaking, and I guess more specifically documentary, uh, something that you'd always been interested in? Something that you... Was filmmaking something you're interested in growing up? And So my dad um, had one of those huge like domestic beater cameras as our home. Right. You know that huge thing <laughs> yeah. you put on your shoulder put and it had tape this in it. battery pack that would um you'd have to carry the huge battery pack around with you. Um so he was definitely committed to making home movies. So I grew up with him filming everything um and then us watching back um those movies and also from 
from you know tiny childhood the, the night i came home from the hospital they always say um we all watched mark's brothers movies right. together um because i wouldn't sleep and there was a marathon on so <laughs> watching movies was always a huge part of growing up and then seeing my dad make them um and then at school i did a little bit of well, there was no media at um our school at the time that we were there yeah but a friend and I were, were always interested and we would make some silly projects either on the weekend or um, even come into school, you know, on days off to use the schools like a one big old camera. Um, but I didn't really know it could be a career. Um, I remember talking to the career counsellor about it and they told me to do um, some kind of commerce degree, <laughs> do like media, but with you should, you know, major in commerce because that will be more practical. More beneficial. Mm to a good Jewish girl. <laughs> mm. Do you remember what the first thing that you made on one of those weekends with whoever this was? Yeah, it was Dana Lenko. Okay. You know her? She, we um, no. did creative arts together and she was actually the one. So the careers counsellor told me to do this media business degree and I was complaining to Dana and she said, there's this course called creative arts where you can make movies and study movies. And I said, well, I'd asked the career counsellor if that existed. And they said, no, they're not going to make up, you know, your dream course for you. Yeah. And so it took Dana to like get, show me the course guide and show me that there was that course. And it was an amazing, amazing course. Um, we made, I think the first film we made was called No Eating in the Library. Um, and it was... <laughs> they would um, not allow that at the Bialik Library. It was what? They would not allow eating in the Bialik no, Library. No, and so what it, it exposed um, this undercover... Um, ruse that the librarians were running where they were upping everyone's fees um, to, to build their own library of books that they wanted and Dana and I exposed it. Um, <laughs> this was not a documentary silly. though. No, no, we wrote, it was, you know, very, um, very fancy script that we wrote. Um, it was very silly, but it was fun. I could just see how much fun it was to, to do that. Did you feel like at... Uh, Obviously, I guess to contextualize for people listening, we went to the same high school, I think we were what, four years apart or something. Did you feel as though going to the type of school that we went to uh, was conducive to pursuing a creative career? Did you feel as though it was more of a hindrance? Did you feel like, um, well, how did you, how did you mm. feel about it? Um, you definitely felt like the odd one out being a creative person. Um, and I don't know if that was a hindrance. It's just that the, the support wasn't really there. Um, if you went out and did things yourself, which I did and Dana did and, you know, a few other people did, then it was exciting. I know, Dan I just remember that Dana and I entered this, um, I heard on the radio about this video competition and Dana and I entered it, um, and made the film on the weekends and we ended up winning. I don't know if we won first prize, but we won one of the top prizes in it. And then once we won, the school was really excited and we went in our you know, school uniforms and one of the teachers came to accompany us. But it actually was nothing to do with the school. They were just proud that we'd done it and we went to the school. Um, so, yeah, I know it's very different there now. I know media is a really big thing. Um, but, you know, I was really involved in theatre and did all the art subjects. So... I still had expression. Yeah. I just didn't have it through filmmaking. And as were, you, much. were your parents trying to uh, maneuver you towards something more academically driven, or were they happy with? They, uh, they've been pretty supportive, um, really. I think they wish I did have a few more business skills, but really, no. They they're very big 
champions and, and very patient. They know it's a long journey and yeah. <laughs> it's confusing to them sometimes, but um, no, they're very supportive. It probably helps that I guess there's a few of us who are, who've been trying to make heads or tails of careers in creative industries because I guess of their generation being that a lot of them were first generation or second generation Australians, there weren't really a lot of, and there was that more kind of, I guess, industrialist mindset. There weren't a lot of people pursuing creative careers. Mm. There would be more pressure to just establish yourself and make money and yeah. you know, make sure make sure your family's comfortable. That's the thing with having a baby is, um, you know, I put it off for a long time because you kind of need to be a bit selfish if you want to be a filmmaker or an artist because you really don't make very much money at all. So there's no way... You know, I could have been making this film and living on nothing um, and sleeping on people's floors and, you know, traveling, you know, carrying all my equipment and and done that with a baby. Yeah, that would be a little bit challenging. (laughs) So when you made uh, or when you finished high school and you went and did the creative arts degree at Melbourne, what was the trajectory, I suppose, for you between then and then making the ball? Because there's a good 10 years or something in there. So I did creative arts, I did the bachelor and then I did kind of an honours year. And I actually just remembered that outside of the course, which was, you know, you you made films, you studied films, you did art, you studied art theory, you studied theatre. It's a really amazing course that doesn't exist anymore, sadly. Um, But as a side project, I made a documentary um, about this group of old Jewish men who played volleyball together. (laughs) And they'd been playing together for like 50 years and they kept getting kicked out of, they kept doing damage to the places they were playing or, you know, rents changed and they kept getting kicked out. Um, So this classmate and I made a little film about it. And I didn't really know anything about documentary. I was studying really fiction. Um, But it just sounded like a cute story. And we made the film and it was in um, this Jewish film festival called Celluloid Soup. Um, which was just a small festival, but that was that was nice. And I think that sh- I'd always loved documentaries, but just that was a good insight into real people being more interesting and funnier maybe than than anything you could write. What was the process like of putting that together for you? So I knew one of the guys who played. So it was he invited us to come along and we went to a few of the games that they would play and film them. And then I organized to interview each of them. There was only six or seven of them. And um, it was Mark Goldenfein and I. And we, I think we had, one of us had a very basic editing set up and we just put it together and made a seven, maybe seven minute film. Um, So you kind of taught yourself in a sense, the kind of practicalities of, or or trial by error in a a way. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if there's any copies of it and I'd probably hate to watch it because, you know, it's badly filmed and I I can't even think about what it was. Yeah, I don't even remember what we did. But um, the story was unique and sweet and I think that's that's why people watched it and liked it. Yeah. Um, So I made, I had, you know, did a bit of everything at Creative Arts, but knew I was interested mostly in the filmmaking. And so I tried to do a bit of everything. I made a musical. Um, I made an animation. Wait, you made a musical? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It was... So I was studying... I really loved Dennis Potter. Yeah. Do you know Do you know his work? No. Um, he wrote a lot of TV, English TV. Right. 
and his whole thing was about pop music. Um, it's a bit like Baz Luhrmann in um, Moulin Rouge, that rather than try and write a song that, you know, tells you everything you need to know, instead go back to the songs of your childhood or songs that already have feeling in them and just get your characters to mime them. So he made a number of um, TV series that used pop music of a particular era and the characters would just start sing, um, miming a pop song of that time to talk about their feelings. Right. So that was kind of a, a launching point for this very silly short um, musical that I made um, with a classmate at Creative Arts where you just use songs that already existed and we you know, had this little love story and um, it was just something I'd always wanted to do because I loved musicals. Um, and similarly, I, so I made a stop motion animation cause I loved those and I thought I might as well, I've got, you know, the tools and I've got the patient classmates who will help me. How long did that take? It was, I did, it was a very simple concept. It was, um, so my uncle is a doctor and one day he was throwing out all these tablets. He'd gotten all these like samples and they were all interesting, different colors. So I asked if I could have them and there was lots um, and so I ended up doing really just like a graphic kind of, um, animation thing with them. And it had, um, interesting audio about racism or something, you know, very try hardy, um, very art film school. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so I think, so I did lots of experimenting while I was at creative arts, always knowing that I wanted to go to VCA in the end. So I think by the time I got to VCA, um, doing the Bachelor of Film and TV, I kind of had got all that out of my system and knew, okay, I'm going to make a narrative um, and I, I'm i pretty sure I know how to do that. And my first year film actually did really, really, really well to the point that one of the my teacher was like, oh, you're not meant to figure this out in first year. It's meant to take you a few years. <laughs> right. But it was actually bad that that film did so well because I wasn't ready. It could It was potentially a really good launching point for my career I was meeting a lot of people and a lot of people really loved it and wanted to talk to me about what I wanted to do with my life but I was like I'm still at uni I've got you know more uni to do um and my films got progressively more esoteric maybe less it was quite a conventional um you know well-told narrative because I wanted to prove to myself that I could do that how did you feel when you were told that maybe this film was I guess, too far ahead of where you should be at. Um, <laughs> it sounds like I'm boasting, but I just had a really clear picture of how to tell. I'd, you know, I'd been to so many film festivals and I had been going to the VCA graduate screenings for years. I always loved going to them. Um, and I had this idea for a story and I could just see very clearly what the arc of this story needed to be to give you the best Um emotional punch and Adam Arkapoor was in my year and he shot it um, and we just shot on beta so it doesn't look like video but it was just video with what we had but you know a good a good craftsman can make anything with with the tools so just everything came together I, I worked with gorgeous actors and um, my uncle was living in this house that was going to be knocked down and we used that as the location and just everything kind of came together in the right way as that something does sometimes does in filmmaking. Yeah. Was there a, was there a part of you that was frustrated or annoyed at the teachers who were suggesting that um that you that you were peaking too early <laughs> or whatever? No, I mean it did feel like pressure because I thought what do you do next? 
Um, but I kind of went the other way and I was like, well, if I've got one, if I've proven to myself and them that I can do it, I'm going to use the next two years to do things that are maybe a little bit more experimental um, and just, you know, try and see what I can do. Right. Um, and then actually when I was in third year, I heard about what became the subject of the ball, um, which is it's about kids with special needs doing a debutante ball and decided to film, do some filming around that, thinking it might be a project that I do when I finished uni. So I was making my graduate film, but I was also with Adam um, shooting the footage for what would then become um, this TV hour for the ABC. Right. And was that, was that funded? No. no. Oh, no. Um, not for the first few years, which was, you know, we shot it over a couple of months and then I just kept on working on the edit um, for probably two years trying to figure out if it, I thought it was just going to be a short, but we had so much footage and there was potential. So I was trying to figure out, could it be something bigger? I ended up cutting together a half hour version for the kids in the film and that ended up with Princess Pictures not it like was tossed in a pile and I think some intern who was there picked it up and said can I see what this is and you know they called me into chat and then we did do some funding applications and ended up getting some money to finish it and do a little bit more filming so it was a few years of no funding and then um, a bit from Screen Australia and then the ABC commissioned it as we got closer. So this was another case of a documentary that unfolded over a number of years um it's mostly no it follows the kids as they're getting ready for their ball oh, so it's really post, over post-production that yeah yeah and i you know had a few little um we could go back and film a few little pickup things um with them but most of the filming was done kind of over a three-month period but just we there was a lot you know we did a lot of two cameras um because we filmed it a lot of these dance rehearsals Adam and I would both take a camera and um just film everything that was going on um and then in the lead up to the actual ball on the night of the ball I'd organized I think five friends and each gave them kind of different jobs around the um the function and I paid them with bagels um (laughs) and yeah we ended up getting some really amazing footage just just by calling on favors from friends right so you said when you went to VCA you were pretty sure that you wanted to do fiction and yet the two kind of most significant projects you've worked on since then have both been documentaries was there a point where you made a deliberate or conscious choice to be pursuing documentaries or was it just something that kind of has happened yeah I think I think I always loved documentaries and I loved um, real people's stories um and maybe it's the the more conventional path seemed to be to to do fiction um the first job that i got coming out of film school first paid job um was making a kind of corporate documentary about this boot company in collingwood that was closing down after 100 years it had been in the same family um the the family had been like gold rush boot makers or something and um still hand making all these men in their 70s and women were making still hand making the boots and I like you couldn't have designed a more beautiful location or collected more interesting people and they were just there given to me waiting to tell their stories Um, and I got paid to do it Um, so that was really exciting and that I think that led me on my started my 
kind of paid job career, which was doing corporate, kind of corporate documentaries as more of what I've done and some corporate short films. Um, But I think that gave me confidence in that way of working, of working with real people. Um, I realized that I really enjoy listening to people talk about things that they love. And I liked the challenge of turning up somewhere and, you know, I haven't, it's not a set. I haven't brought in everything. It's here's this location. How can you make it work? What are the magical things that you can find in there? Um, it's, it's a different kind of challenge to if you write a fiction and you're trying to source that like one perfect prop that you need or the actor who's got this exact face that you've imagined. Um, I think I kind of like documentary that you don't know what you're going to get till you turn up. And so when you had the ball in the can uh, and it was on ABC, um, you were nominated for an actor award, did it feel like in a sense that that had legitimized your choices uh, I guess in the in the eyes of your family or people who may have questioned why you were going down this path. Mm. Oh, I don't know if anyone questioned it. Um, maybe except for my dad because he loved my short films and he kept saying, "Why aren't you writing another? You know, why aren't you writing a fiction feature?" Um, but he also loved the doco work I was doing. So w- while I was making the ball, I was making corporate documentaries I made a couple of kind of similar ones that were about kind of family business stories that wanted to share the full um, history of their business and you know um, so I really liked that process because it meant I had some money to pay my crew when I was making the actual doco stuff Um, so I don't I mean the actor was amazing and having the ball on the ABC was mind-blowing but I think um, having those other little bits of work that kept happening that were that are kind of documentaries because you're working with real people um, just clarified for me that that was that was how I liked working yeah and so when you met Rita although it sounds like there was a little bit uh, of a preamble I guess to coming up with I used to be normal um, in the sense that you were a boy band fan or you, you arrived at this place of boy band fandom a little bit later than most other people do. So what was the genesis of your boy band fandom? So at high school, I was too busy making, you know, no eating in the library and <laughs> thinking I was a, an artiste. Um, so I wasn't into boy bands because I thought they were for the masses. Um, and I remember being very dismissive of Backstreet Boys and... Um, in sync and not only the music and and I thought the guys in the band were quite ugly um, but the people who liked them I thought that was you know you couldn't have had much taste if you liked that music I was you know listening to um, classical music and you know lots of jazz (laughs) music and um, Harry Connick Jr that was my I was a fangirl for Harry Connick Jr which you know I probably justified because it was you know was jazz kind or whatever. of yeah jazzy funky <laughs> yeah anyway so yeah the boy band I did not think about boy bands at all until um, even to the point that you know I was working in an office in 2012 like an open plan you know just shared studio and One Direction were here in 2012 for the Logies in Melbourne yeah in Melbourne and a guy in my office was going to film them on the red carpet and I remember like thinking oh that's a cool job like oh cool have fun 
but within like two weeks, if he would have, and when my love for One Direction appeared, if he would have said that to me, I would have like begged to, you know, go along and be on the red carpet with him. But it really was like this instantaneous, um, I heard one of their songs on the radio. It was one thing. And I remember listening to that song and thinking, this is so repetitive. They've like the chorus, they've sung the chorus like 15 times. It's such a simple song. They think their audiences are idiots. But I got out of the car and I was singing. The song was like stuck in my head. Right. Um, So I went up to my studio desk and I was like, I need to watch that video clip because that song is stuck in my head. Um, And the video clip is adorable. They're in, it's a very kind of um, hard day's night Kind of, they're they're in London. They're running around. They're in like three piece suits. They're very well dressed, um, and fans are chasing them. And they're riding a double decker bus, um, and it just felt very refreshing to me in terms of music videos. There were there were no girls in bikinis. Um, no one was wearing gold chains. It just felt <laughs> it felt very innocent, and the song was just poppy and simple, um, and it just made me want to know more about them. And thus began a spiral into One Direction on the internet and then, um, you know, buying the album and listening to the songs on repeat. Um, and the love affair was born. Um, at what point did you decide I need to make a documentary about this so that I can show that I'm not weird? <laughs> yeah, so I think I read a quote that said, you should take what you procrastinate with and turn it into your job. And I had amassed a lot of knowledge about One Direction, but also, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of fan speak. Like I was in on all these conspiracy theories and knew all these terms that that, um, you used to talk about the boys or about um, other fans. And one, I had no one to talk to about that stuff with. Um, And two, it made me think, this because I'd never I'd been a fan of things before but never when the internet had been so big so it made me wonder was was being a fan of this thing very particular to this time and place and you know where technology was or had you know being a fan of the Beatles felt this way had I dismissed Backstreet Boys fans unfairly were they feeling the same thing did they connect in the same way um so just I started to get curious about this world that I was discovering and also feeling like um, you know, I judged it too quickly and that and that most people in the world would judge it. The assumption, all you see of boy band fans normally is the screaming and the crying. And that is part of it. But from being on the internet and seeing these fans being so hilarious and so smart, um, so creative, I thought the world should see that there's more more to this than they realize. And when did you like actually officially roll cameras? Um, it was April 2013. Right. And how did you find and kind of decide upon the main uh, protagonists of the of the doc? Um, so we we did quite a bit of filming um, with a few more characters that are in there, just trying to gather different experiences. Um, and those four emerged as kind of the strongest. They were amazing on camera, um, very open, and there was a depth to their stories that um, they were willing to share, I guess. Um, And I also loved that they represented, you know, a wide range of bands, um, a range of generations um, and a range of experiences as well. 
Yeah, I think the different generations and the way that they were affected by the particular artists, whether it was you know One Direction or Take That or Backstreet Boys, it's quite uh, emblematic, I suppose, of that period of time as well um, and what that represented in a kind of popular culture sense. It's almost like a time capsule, which is very cool. And so you were traveling between... I remember when we... When you first told me about it, must have been three or four years ago. Um, you know, you were traveling between Melbourne and the States to keep, you know, keep filming, keep going. You were, there was a lot of frustration about how you were going to piece it together, how the story was going to unfold, how long it was going to take, whether there was going to be funding available. You know, all these challenges, I suppose, you alluded to at, at the beginning of the conversation. What what are the most what were the most uh, prominent challenges I guess and how did you mm. overcome them? I guess the thing you know coming having making the ball, which um, you know on its first night had like three hundred fifty thousand people watched it, nominated for an actor. I worked with this amazing production company and everyone was saying, "Oh, it's going to open doors for you. It's going to like be the beginning." And then to there were a couple of other projects along the way that smaller things that I tried to get up that didn't happen but you know when I started this project and just felt so strongly that this was going to be something good but that there's kind of no support um how hard you have to fight um to constantly prove yourself um it doesn't matter if you've if you've done something before that that did well or that you know you managed to do with a small budget or whatever you've achieved you still have to prove yourself again and I think making Convincing people that a film about boy band fans is worthwhile um, is going to be moving and significant and surprising. It was kind of exhausting because Rita and I knew it and we could see it and the amount of time we were spending convincing, not only funding bodies, but we we um, decided to go to a lot of private donors. Um, so the amount of time you're spending writing applications, writing emails, trying to find people to to support you when you just want to be making the film um, is very frustrating. And I know every creative person would be feeling this because you, you believe in your vision and you, it's, you, know, you want other people to believe in it too. So that was really frustrating. And yeah, I made it more challenging for myself by putting some of the subjects overseas. So it meant that um, I couldn't just you know, go around the corner and film. There's only one who's in Melbourne. Um, the others are interstate or in America. So, you know, as much as I, you know, I had a quite a bit of my own gear and I was sleeping on friends' couches, but still, you know, I, I just didn't have the money for airfares or, you know, to hire a car or the times that I needed to pay crew. So just trying to find little bits of money to, to make those practical things happen. And you're not even paying yourself a wage. It's just to get those practical things that you need yeah. to to tell the story. How are you supporting yourself in that time? You're still making corporate dollars? I was um, over that. I think I was making some corporates and I started teaching um, just to pay my rent and remind myself about. So I was teaching fiction, writing short um, fiction, short film fiction. Um, so that was good just to remind myself about what I knew and, and didn't know. What was that experience like? Good. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. It was fun. I was doing it at Melbourne Uni, so it was fun to kind of be back at Melbourne Uni. But um, I actually felt really sad that creative arts didn't 
exist anymore because these kids were doing um they had such little access to film related subjects i think um so you could see some of them were kind of going beyond the class and would make stuff themselves or you know join filmmaking groups or something but um yeah, I felt bad that I kept talking about how amazing this course was that I'd done um, at the uni 15 years prior. <laughs> that and they could not they do. They couldn't do. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it was fun. It's short film. It's really hard to write a good short film. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you uh, people often learn the most when they're put in a position where they have to teach. Mm. So I could imagine that that probably helped. What's cool is they study in the like curriculum is my VCA short film. So oh, they, cool. yeah, they study that so that was really good because that was the one week i didn't have to prepare anything because i could just tell them (laughs) about yeah the process of making that yeah right so uh, how i guess significant was it for you that you you know you had your own gear and that you had this experience so that you could if you needed to go and shoot stuff yourself or Mm. you know record stuff yourself you didn't have to rely on other people Mm. well yeah and so the only reason i had my own gear was I'd been able to buy it from corporate jobs. So I didn't have money to buy gear. I just, as soon as, as soon as I would have some money from a corporate, I would buy equipment. And yeah, that was amazing. Just being able to, to know, I mean, I'm not a cinematographer, but I did, I can shoot and I did actually shoot quite a bit of, I used to be normal because there's just a lot of situations that it's easier if it's just you, if you can just jump in a car and do it yourself or. Or a plane. Yeah, or a plane. Um, oh, and I also had had developed quite, I guess, intimate relationships with the the girls and women in the film. And there were a few times where it just felt better for it to just be me, um, and just be able to set up what I needed and not, you know, not have a sound recordist or a camera person, um, and just do it myself. Yeah. At what point did the kind of the arc of the story really present itself to you? It's so hard when you with, you know distance you're like well of course that's the way that you tell the story there could have been no other way um but when you're in it it feels very confusing and it's a giant jigsaw puzzle with no map yeah it's totally it feels like such a mess because each each character is having important experiences and figuring out yeah how to fit those together that each one has its own time and that you, you get to know each character in, in a way that makes you care about them um, was really challenging. Um, there was a point where I thought I'd kind of hold off on the Beatles woman story until further along in the story that because you would judge these young fans um, and, and not be able to relate to them and then you meet the Beatles woman and you're like, oh, I see, it's exactly the same um, as the Beatles and the Beatles were, you know, are legitimate so... Um, so we did play with that, but then realized it's nice to have them, you know, kind of getting to know them all at the same time. But then even, you know, how do you meet them? Do you meet them at their most crazy? Do you meet them at their most vulnerable? Do you meet them at their most insightful? Um, and you kind of want to try all those things just to see which one resonates the most. Yeah. And, and so were you like testing that with audiences or just... Um, so I I was editing the film for a while and I put together each of the four women's stories I found the arc in each of the four women um and then we brought on an editor and she and I we spent about six weeks together trying the different ways you know we had the standard pin board with all the 
cards and we just played with all different ways um, to put those stories together. And we did a couple of test screenings along the way just to see who you cared about and when you cared about them. In the right. Story. So did you, I guess, what was the post-process like once you'd brought the editor on? Mm. Um, it, can I just say it was so exciting to have like a team yeah, right. After being like, you know, for four or five years, it was just Rita and I. Yeah. Um, and we love each other, but you can go a bit crazy. Um, and yeah, it feels very isolating. A lot of the time it was just me. Rita would come and work with me one or two days a week. But a lot of the time it was just me at my desk at home and her at her desk at home doing our respective jobs. So once we got some funding from um, our Kickstarter and our private donors and... Screen Australia and Film Victoria, we had money to go to Sound Firm um, here in Melbourne and set up a proper suite and, yeah, just bring on a team. So we had an assistant editor, two assistant editors and an editor. Um, I was having animations done for the film and a composer and just all these people who – one of the most beautiful moments for me was when um, I think it was one of the assistant editors called the film Our Film. Right. And my heart just like <laughs> soared because I was like, I'm sick of it being my film. I want to share it with um, other people and that they were feeling ownership over it. It yeah. was so um, special. But so it was, I was really glad we were at Sound Firm because it was quite a messy, um, I'd shot it on so many different formats. There were, I had two of my own cameras. Then sometimes I'd different cinematographers we'd work with because you're paying them nothing or next to nothing you know you just use whatever they have so there would have been like I don't know maybe six different formats of um, camera footage that we had to get into the system and um, I'd edited it on Final Cut Pro and the editor we brought in wanted to use Avid so then it was about changing the project over and reconnecting everything so there were a lot of technical issues that were you know way beyond me and um, being in an actual post house made that so much easier yeah while you were in that i guess the four years prior to that process beginning how did you reconcile those times where you felt like is this ever going to go anywhere (laughs) yeah no there's huge there's huge um moments of self-doubt you feel like a crazy person a lot of the time there was one time when i flew to america by myself um and I flew into Washington um, to drive to where Sadia's family was to film with them. And I got in at like 11 o'clock at night, picked up a hire car. And I hadn't driven for like a year on the other side of the road. I'm really exhausted. I got in the car and I was like, what am I doing? Like I was feeling quite like scared for my life that it was nighttime. I was jet lagged. I was driving on the other side of the road to make a film about boy band fans. And I just really felt like a crazy person. And I saw the White House in the distance and I was like, Barack Obama, help me through this time. <laughs> like I just um, was a bit delirious. Um, so yeah, that's so the White House now. No, I would not. Crisis. You would not get any comfort from no. looking towards the White House. Um, yeah, I can't even, I don't know what it is that keeps you going when you're feeling like you're doing something that's crazy. Um, but I just, I think I loved the project and I loved the women in the film and I could see, vision. yeah, I could see the potential in it. Um, you, and you really have to be your own cheerleader for so much of this process and experience. And yeah, I just kept telling myself it was gonna, it was going to be good. 
what was the kind of when you began what was the ideal outcome from creating this film well, I just wanted I wanted to surprise people. I wanted people to think that they knew what the film was going to be and what these girls were like and and to really surprise them and make them feel feelings that they weren't expecting to have. I wanted to I wanted to make them laugh and cry is usually my <laughs> my goals. Well, definitely the uh the responses that I've seen on social media and things to screenings at Hot Docs and Sydney and Melbourne um you've achieved that uh, quite pr- profoundly mm. uh what was the feeling for you when you finally i keep asking about feelings but i guess um it's, it's a film a, about feelings. it's a film about yeah. feelings <laughs> for you when you when you locked off image sound mix was done you had your animation complete or what was the at what point did you decide to include animation in the piece um i think i'd wanted to do that quite early i wanted there to be um Lots of kind of textural elements in it. Are you frustrated by the fact that there's a lot of animation in documentaries at the moment? Yeah, no, I think it's a really clever way for documentaries to... I kind of feel like it's better than recreations, yeah. which can kind are really hard to pull off. And I think it's a really fun and, you know, it can be really beautiful to, to find a style that, that works um, for your own documentary. But so I knew that this thing about talking about how being a fan has changed... Um, being on Tumblr and seeing that even though girls might not be actually like physically making collages, they're still really busy making them online. And I wanted there to be this kind of timelessness of doodles and collage and um, scrapbooking. And um, I saw Rebecca Clark's work because she's the animator and I just loved it. Um, And yeah, we reached out to her and it was a really fun job for her. She kind of animates the girls' fantasies. Um, So that was... That was a really fun process. It's hard to do it when people are overseas. Yeah. That that um, you know, developing a rapport and a dialogue with someone who's not in the physical same space as you. But um, she's very talented, and we had an animator here, who, Leith Matner, who would you know actually put put them together and make them move. And so once everything was in place and it was all picture locked, and you mm-hmm. were looking at the film as a completed piece for the first time after this five or six year. Uh, incubation period Mm. what was that like for you Um, you do lose perspective because you end up you know you've watched it like 200 times in all different shapes and sizes yeah so you lose you lose perspective and it was a very it was a really challenging year personally for me while we were making the film my mother-in-law died like the day that we locked picture oh wow so I remember watching the film a few days later and I, I felt nothing. I was like, this film is terrible. I'm just, I was so numb that that um, it didn't make me feel anything. Um, and Rita and Joe, the editor, I think were a bit worried because they were like, no, we think it's good. Why is Jess not feeling anything? Um, but yeah, with a bit of um, space from that and we had a um, test screening, just a really small test screening and hearing an audience um laugh and sniffle you know in sad moments um is real you know that's what you want to just know that it's not the jokes you've put in aren't just jokes for you and the things that you think are emotional aren't just doing that for you they're moving people who have no connection to the people um on screen so yeah seeing that it affected people beyond the the ones who know it really well was really um a good sign 
yeah, for us. that's the best sign, I suppose. And then you, was there a very strategic kind of mapping of the festivals that you wanted to submit it to and that you wanted to get it into? Yeah, we um, we did feel like a North American premiere would be good just because, you know, there's so many boy band fans yeah. over there. Um, you, know, you know, it's a very Western-centric story, um, even though there's boy bands all over the world and maybe one day we'll get to tell the story of all the other boy bands. Um, but, yeah, we just felt that... that um, we had a few festivals on our list and Hot Docs, we, you know, it was an exciting one to aim for. And at what point did Mad Men come on board? Um, Mad Men were amazing. They came on relatively early because Rita and I went to um, 37 Degrees South, which is the, um, you know, part of the market at MIF. When would that have been? 2016, I think. And yeah, we did a lot of pitching. I think partly that was also for us just to remind ourselves what the film was about because we spent that whole year trying to make money for the film rather than actually shooting it. Um, so yeah, Mad Men, Mad Men um, we had a meeting with them and they asked to see a bit more footage and I cut together kind of some character reels just to show them some of the footage that we had and I'd cut together a kind of teaser trailer. Um, and we had a couple of chats with them and meetings with them and they luckily could see the potential in it so they came on board and that you know I don't think we would have got our government funding without them and now you've got a release coming up in November at yes. Nova yes it must be very exciting to, to have a <laughs> screening it at Nova as well as as a kind of culmination of all of these great festivals that you've been at yeah it is exciting um it will be a different you know with MIF you've got an audience, like a willing audience. They're film lovers, they're documentary lovers. You know, they come and they want to see films. Um, it feels like it's going to be more of a challenge with the Nova to get people in the door. Um, and our film, I think our film is a bit hard to market because people think they know what it's about. Um, and, you know, the same problem we had, I guess, with raising the money is people can be quite dismissive. So it's about how do you convince people that this film is going to... Um, give you more than than you think it's not just a fluff piece about you know silly girls screaming and i assume the next documentary is about changing nappies and <laughs> no i think i'd want to separate my <laughs> work life from my <laughs> home life right have you got any ideas brewing about where you want to move to next yeah i do i've got a few things in development um trying to have a bit of maternity leave as well um but yeah i've got a few ideas and it's it's exciting to think about, you know, what, what a next step looks like. Um, I don't think that it, I, like, I can't tell if it is going to get easier. So it's about finding those projects that you really love and that love is going to be what sustains you. Um, I need, you know, now that I have a baby, I do need to earn some money. I can't, it can't be just love that, that the project runs on, but you know, it needs to be a lot of love because there's going to be a lot of doors that close in your face. Yeah, uh, but I think we're at a really good time to be making documentaries. Seems like stating the obvious, but you know, with um, the the kind of mini boom, I suppose, in documentary and the um, appetite for for good documentary mm. films, storytelling series, it's uh, hopefully a lot more doors will start to mm. open. Yeah, I think it used to seem like documentary was so like 
um, on the outer. Um, there weren't there wouldn't be many at the cinemas. It was not something that people really sought out. And you're right, it does seem now like people are really into them. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Jess. It's been uh, pretty amazing to watch from afar, for at least for the last couple of years, as it's all kind of taken shape. Um, and thanks for having a ramble with me on the podcast. I finish all the conversations with the same question, which is, what makes you silly? Um, what makes me silly, you know, I haven't felt it for a while, but I'm hoping it comes back, um, was, you know, that beginning of falling in love with One Direction and just feeling like... Um, they call it the One Direction infection. Right. Just feeling like totally not in control of my feelings, like um, something could make me cry or laugh that I actually had no like direct connection to. Um, and yeah, I remember a bit like the girl in my film who says, "What happens? I happened to me. I used to be normal. I really had this feeling like, <laughs> who is this person that is so easily like moved by a song or you know find some inane joke that one of the boys says hilarious." Um, so yeah, I'd have to say boy bands. Right. It's funny, you know, as I was watching it, I mean, I'm a male that has not really any uh, affinity to boy bands personally, but as I was watching the film and I'm actually uh, wearing a jumper that indicates what I'm going to say right now, but um, as I was watching the film, it became very apparent to me that it's not really about boy band fandom so much as it is about communal kind of fandom or like a communal kind of experience and I could relate very much to it from the point of view of someone who loves professional wrestling which is by public or popular consent ridiculous but I'm a uh, 33 year old man who spends five hours a week watching pro wrestling which I guess is a similarly silly endeavor well it's a similar thing that it's um my boyfriend loved um heavy metal music growing up and it's a similar thing where people on the outside judge you think they know who you are based on what you're a fan of but they actually have no idea what it means to you what you get out of it um so yeah like you say it's not it's not about the thing necessarily it's about what it makes you feel and how it makes you behave yeah exactly and hopefully it will be silly yeah (laughs) thanks so much Jess. thank you 